Let's take our Bibles this morning, and we're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, just to test your mettle, also to Psalm 102. So, Psalm 102, I'm not sure what page that's on. I know that Hebrews 1 is on page 1001. So, if you've just found Hebrews, that's all right. Just listen while I read Psalm 102. Don't want to complicate things overly much for you. In Psalm 102, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord, that is, to the covenant-keeping God, to Yahweh, hear my prayer, O Lord. And at the end of the psalm, he says this, the Lord builds up Zion and appears in His glory. And then in verse 25, of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And in Hebrews chapter 1, and to give you a sense of the flow of the passage, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, He has spoken to us literally by Son, that is, by one who is Son. And He goes on to quote, for to which of the angels, verse 8, did God, verse 5, did God ever say, you are my Son? Then in verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And of the Son, he says, verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment." Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, wherever you look on social media these days, it seems that everybody is liking or sharing or liking and sharing Pentatonix's rendition of Mary did you know? Did you know the song? Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? <laughs> Wooder? But the word is water. <laughs> so, now that I've corrected your English pronunciation… <laughs> Uh, the, the song unfolds like that. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save your, our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you've delivered will soon deliver you. So, I want to ask the question, 
What did Mary understand? Did she understand who Jesus was? And then to answer the question, using these verses in our ongoing exposition of Hebrews to try and put it into perspective. For those of you who have not been with us and following the story so far, what the writer to the Hebrews is doing is raising the stakes very high when it comes to our understanding of the Son of God. He begins by putting the word God and the word Son together in the same category and saying that the Son is the one through whom everything is made. The Son is the heir who gets everything there is of God and everything that God has as well as is that you cannot think of God without thinking of the Son because He's the radiance of the glory of God, and He's the exact imprint of His being. So you cannot think of God without thinking of the Son, and the Son without thinking of God. And then in verse 5, He has transitioned from that to describe created reality and the difference of position and place that the Son of God has. And for those of you who weren't here, he kind of describes reality, uh, creaturely reality, as belonging at the lowest level, human beings, and then an interim level between God and human beings, there are the angels, the archangels, the seraphim, the cherubim, uh, the principalities and the powers and the authorities and so on. And then there is God. God is not part of creaturely reality creation, the universe, both the things visible and invisible have all been made by God. The highest of those is the angels, and the angels are a kind of ontological measure of where you are in the scheme of things, God above them and the universe and us below them. And so, having described the Son's relationship to God, the writer has gone on in verse 5 to start to describe the writer's relationship, the, the son's relationship to the angels. He, he talks about him as the son who has been eternally begotten by God, begotten and not made. He, he talks about the son as sharing the throne of God. He is the one described in verse, in verse 8 as God himself, your throne, O God. And the author introduces that. Psalm 45 quotation with the words, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So, from all eternity, the Son has authority, the authority of God. He has the monarchy of God. He rules as God from all eternity. And now he's going to spell it out even more clearly as uh, he answers the question, Mary, did you know in the language of the verses that we just read this morning. Mary, did you know that your little baby boy is God's Son and that He is, in fact, God the Almighty? God the Almighty. Look at the words of verse 10. Again, they come from Psalm 102, and they say this, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. You, Lord, in the psalm, there are two realities. There's the creaturely reality of everything you can imagine, visible and invisible, that has been made by God. 
And then there is the reality of God. God is not part of creaturely reality. God stands apart from and above and over against creaturely reality. He is the creator and the maker. This creaturely reality we are in is His creation, His made thing. And that includes all of us. And the angels, they are creatures too. They have been made by God. And so what he's doing is he's extending and unpacking those first four verses in which he laid down his thesis statement at the very beginning of this book, that when you think of the Son of God, you are to think of God, and that that is where you must begin. Before ever you get to Bethlehem and the manger and the baby, think first about God and the infinite distance that God has to come, as it were, before He turns up in human flesh, in Mary's womb, and then produced by Mary at birth in Bethlehem. The language, do you notice, makes us think of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And those words, beginning and earth and heavens, in verse 10, are all direct parallels of that description of creation we have at the very beginning of the Bible. And what the author is doing here is helping us to read the Old Testament. Very often when we read the Old Testament, we read stuff and we think to ourselves, who is speaking here? Is this God the Father? When it says God in the Old Testament, does that mean God the Father? Very often in the New Testament, that's what it means. Does it mean that in the Old Testament? And the answer of the New Testament is that when you read the Old Testament and it talks about God, it is not talking specifically, necessarily, about one or other of the persons of the Trinity. It's talking about the Trinity, God as the triunic, because it's not been revealed yet until the New Testament. So, for example, a man called Theodore, a fourth-century character, round about the year 350, he said this, whenever the Old Testament speaks about the divine nature, i.e. God, it does not speak distinctly about the Father alone, because divine nature belongs equally to the Son and the Spirit. It's talking about God, the Lord, the triune God. That's why the author can go to Psalm 102. He can see a reference to Yahweh, a reference to God as the Lord, and he can say this, when it says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth, it includes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the one God who is active in creation. That's why he could say earlier on in the book, at the beginning of the book, through His Son, through whom He created the world. Which is why in Genesis 1, we find the creation comes about by God, through His Word and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Word, and Spirit are all together together combined in the creation of the world. There's one, one passage that I want to, to just mention in passing. It's in Isaiah 48. We spend a long time in this church studying the book of Isaiah, 
and uh, some people are still in recovery and therapy uh, as a result. But in Isaiah 48, we hear someone speaking. And the someone who is speaking is saying things that the God of Israel says. In fact, it says, the Lord says. The Lord says, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I've called. I am He. I am the first. I am the last. And you will, if you know your Bible, hear echoes of Jesus saying, I am, I am, over and over again. I am the first. I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stood forth together. And then it goes on to say, the speaker goes on to say, and now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God. So we get all confused here. Who's speaking? Well, it's the one who says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God. He's speaking. And yet he says, the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. And he's saying the very same things the Lord God says. I am the first and I am the last. The words Jesus says in Revelation chapter 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In other words, as we read the Old Testament, we are to expect that really in the Old Testament we are hearing God the Lord speak in the trinity of His sacred persons. And Jesus belongs to the identity of the Lord God of Israel. Mary, did you know that your little baby boy is the Son of God, and by the Son of God we mean He is the Lord God Almighty. He is the Almighty Lord. Mary, did you know that your Son is the eternal God, untimed and unending? Look again at verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. I said those words, in the beginning, have to do with Genesis chapter 1. And what is it saying here? It's saying this, before there was a beginning, there was the being of God. Before there was the beginning of anything, we're taken here to the very rim of created reality. We're taken beyond Point zero, we're taken beyond that and behind that and beyond it and behind it. And beginning the beginning is the Lord. And we're being told by that language that the Lord existed from all eternity. That's what Psalm 102 says. It says, your years have no end. He existed before the beginning, and He will exist to eternity. That's why it says, the things you've made will perish, but you remain. Now, what does he mean? What will perish? As, well, as we read on in Hebrews, we discover that the first creation, this creation, will to a degree perish. Now, that does not mean that it will be annihilated. It will not perish in the sense that it will disappear altogether as if this creation was fundamentally evil and worthless. A man called Ephraim the Syrian, again fourth century, says this, all the works of creation will be renewed, renewed for us. That's what the Bible 
teaches. This perishing will give way to something else. Now, this is a theme that the, the writer of the Hebrews is going to develop through this book later on in chapter 12, for example. He reminds the people of when God came and appeared to Israel on Mount Sinai. He reminds them how terrified they were when God came down, uh, the violence of God's approach to them. Uh, this is what he says, at that time, thinking about Israel and Sinai where the law was given and God coming down at that time, His voice shook the earth. And it goes on to say that God promised that He will yet once more shake not only the earth but the heavens. His voice shook the earth in a limited geographical area around Sinai. But it says there's coming a day at the end of history when the whole earth will be shaken, and not only the earth, but the heavens. That is, the heavenly realm that is all around us, the, the realm of the demons, the realm of the angels, the realm of the archangels, the, the realm of the authorities and principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Everything will be shaken. He's talking about the end of history. He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ when He comes back a second time. This time, not not as a baby in Bethlehem, not disguised, but this time fully known, fully publicly seen and received when He comes back a second time with great power and great glory. And he explains, the writer explains, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let's be grateful, he says, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, what is this shaking involved? Not annihilation, but renovation and transformation. It's described as a kind of purifying or sifting process by which what is valuable in this creation is kept and what is worthless and defective as a result of the fall is removed. So, in that sense, this old decaying order will be destroyed as if by fire, for our God is a consuming fire. Think of the effects of the fall on things here. The language, if, if you look at verse 11, it talks about something perishing. He talks about something wearing out. That's what's going on all the time. Somebody showed me this week a picture of me uh, round about the time I was installed. I hate that word. It's like installing a heater in your house. But, but round about the time nearly six years ago when I was installed uh, here, and, uh, and I looked at a picture, and then I, I looked in the well, you call it the mirror. I call it mirror and a mirror. Look at the mirror. No, 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 no. Mirror. M-I-R-R-O-R. Mirror. Say it after me. Mirror. Mirror. Anyway, that aside, no judgment intended. No judgment. No judgment. 
I looked in the mirror, and what I saw in the mirror was very different from what, was, what this picture showed. The, the time and uh, the experience and tense and everything else has obviously had its effect. Because everything is decaying. Everything is decaying. And not only that, look at the language. They will all wear out like a garment. Now, I know that you don't have garments long enough for them to wear out, because you're Americans. You can afford to just change them. Uh, I remember once, uh, I shouldn't really tell you this, so don't tell anyone else, but I remember once I was flying from Glasgow to London. I was going to London for some big thing, and I think I was wearing chinos, and uh, so I'd gone through the airport in Glasgow, I'd gone on the plane and walked up and down the plane. I was on my way out, I'm standing on the line in the plane as we're, as we're kind of disgorging out into, uh, into London. And I felt something, <clears throat> I felt something round about here. I reached down my hand and I found that there was a, a naked area, roughly, you know, this where my wallet is, right here in my, in my pocket. These chinos had worn out, and I wondered why people were looking at me. I thought maybe am I famous down here? People are looking at me. You know, they obviously were not looking at me because they recognised me. They're looking at me because I looked like a stupid idiot walking around with this bare part of my anatomy. I know that's too much information for you for a Sunday morning, <laughs> so don't try and imagine it at all. But it was very, very embarrassing because they'd worn out. That's what can happen. You've got to be very careful, guys, that you're pants don't wear out. But this is the language that is being used here. The things that are, including our physical being, are wearing out. And do you notice what he says? It is the Son, verse 12, who will roll them up like a garment. It's in the hands of the Son, ultimately by His deliberate choice and action, to change everything ultimately and to bring an end to things as they are. But he says about the Son, you will remain permanently. Look at that, verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. The language there is, you do remain and you will remain. You have remained. You've always been there. You remain. He is a rock. He is immovable. He he is permanent. He is not part of this creaturely reality by His eternal nature. Now, we have to say, of course, that Mary's little boy was born a little boy. Mary's little boy was born into creature reality. The Son of God took to Himself this human nature that God had prepared for Him. And in that human nature, he became a servant. In that human nature, he learned obedience. In that human nature, he grew up, and he grew older, and he changed as he grew up. Physically, he changed. Intellectually, no doubt, he changed. In that nature, he suffered grief and abandonment, and he suffered in that, in that human nature. And and in the end, he was crucified, dead, and buried in that human nature. And it was in our human nature that he was raised from the dead and glorified. He was changed by the glorification of, of his human nature and became the first fruits 
of the renewed all things that God promised to bring about. So he changed as a human being as we do. There was a time when he was young, and there was a time when he was mature. But the Son of God, in his divine nature, never changes, never ages. He is eternal. He is eternally unchanging. He is eternally remaining. He eternally is. That's why Jesus said, you remember, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was. I was there when Abraham was. No, no. I am means absolute being. He always is. He always is. So, for example, in Jude chapter 25, verse 25 rather, Jude suddenly exploded in size there. Uh, There's no chapters, it's just one, it's just verses. Uh, We read about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit receiving glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now, and forever. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always shared the properties of what it means to be God. They've always had glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. That has never altered. That has never changed. They are eternal. He is eternal. Time is a measure of creaturely reality, but time has no bearing on God who is eternal. I am that I am. So the Son's eternity relates Him to His divine nature, and that eternity animates His human nature after the resurrection, so that His human nature after the resurrection is made to live forever. His human nature is made to live forever, animated by His divine nature. And so we read, for example, that as our high priest, He ever lives to make intercession for us. He will never, ever cease to be there to plead our part, our case, to act on our behalf, to represent us to the Father. He ever lives to ensure our salvation. He has never ceased to share the authority and majesty of His eternal throne as As the writer has just said in verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he has never ceased to reign, but he takes his human nature up into his authority and majesty, and his human nature shares his divine reign forever. As the Messiah and Savior, he has inherited David's throne. He always had heaven's throne, but he inherits David's throne. As the Son of God, eternally, He is qualified, therefore, to be Adam's son, Abraham's son, David's son, and Mary's son. Being son is something He knows what to do, how to do, because He has been eternally the Son of God, sharing the very nature of God. And He came into our world to share our nature so that He might touch and reach 
you and I where we are. So because Jesus is the king and head of the church, of which we are the body, it means if he's eternal, the church will never fail. Because Jesus is our Savior and we are in Christ because of our union with Christ, it means that because of our connection to Jesus, our salvation will never be lost, never be lost. We need not fear because He is eternal. The life that He gives us is eternal life. Mary, did you know that your Son is the eternal God? And thirdly, Mary, did you know that your Son is the Son of God and He is the immutable God, unchanged and unchanging? Do you notice that word change really takes, begins to take center stage in verse 12? Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. That means change and decay in all around we see, but when we look at the Son of God, we find that He has the very qualities of God. He is immutable, that is, He is unchanged and unchanging. Now, by the way, that word changed there is a clue that when it talks about the world perishing, it does not mean to perish utterly, but rather to be changed radically. To be changed radically. This present order of things is susceptible to change and reordering. Listen to, to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. He says this, using the picture of someone who is on tip, tippy toes, uh, reaching forward, reaching up, and looking as far as they can into a horizon to see something. He says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why does it do that? Because, he says, the creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. See the same language? Decaying language. <clears throat> the second law of thermodynamics, everything is running down, running down, running down. That's the way this creation is. Bondage to decay. But that is not the end. Just as your decaying body is not the end of the story. What is Jesus going to do when He comes back again? He is going to reunite our spirits to our resurrected, transformed, glorified bodies that are so redesigned as they will live for billions, billions, and billions of years without diminution, without decay, and without death. That's the goal. And what the, the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 8 is creation knows this. The inanimate creation, the invisible creation knows this. And they cannot wait because creation knows that when the children of God receive their unchanging and unchangeable and eternal bodies, it itself 
will be transformed to be a suitable environment in which we can live eternally. The great thing that God is doing is reversing the tragedy of time. In those words of Thomas Howard, time keeps turning the pages, even the pages on which there is a picture of Eden. Time keeps turning the pages. Maybe you're at a perfect period in your life. Everything is going well for you. Your friends are alive and well and healthy. You're doing great things, and you think this is, this is paradise. This is great. Time keeps turning the pages. And yet, what we're being taught in this passage is that that is not the end of the story. Though there is change and decay all around us, that is not the end of God's purpose. There is coming a day when we will be changed finally, when the Lord Jesus comes back. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we shall be changed. Our mortality will put on immortality. That which is decaying will become indestructible. We will be given bodies like His glorified, glorious body. That's where we're going. That's the goal. That's our destiny. But all this talk about things changing, you notice is put in stark contrast with the divine Son. The divine nature is unchanged and unchanging. Without any you know, when, when the Lord Jesus took on our humanity, He took on something He did not have before. He took on our humanity. But His divine nature did not change. It did not alter by addition, diminution, or alteration. He remains the Lord God. And what it says about the Lord God is this, I am the Lord. I do not change. Unchangeableness and immutability is proper to God. He is unchangeable in His being. You cannot add or subtract anything to God. He just is. He is being. Absolute being. I am that I am. He is not becoming something else. You are all, everybody in this room, becoming something else. You're young. You're becoming older. You're immature. You're becoming maturer. Well, maybe but we're all in the process of becoming. But God is not becoming anything. God is. He is. He doesn't change for the better, because if He did, He could not take any pleasure in being what He was before. He doesn't change for the worse, because any change in that direction would give Him less pleasure. Any state of change would rob God of the pleasure He has, the infinite pleasure He has in Himself from all eternity. His essence, His godness, neither increases nor decreases. 
He cannot become either more or less God than he is. God is self-caused. God is all of his attributes, all those things that he says he is. Loving kindness and, and goodness and holiness and righteousness and so on. And resurrection and life. I am that I am. Now you may object, so I'll anticipate your objection. You may say to me, well, you know, in the Bible, don't we find God, some changes in God? Don't we find Him coming and going? Revealing Himself, then concealing Himself. Averting His gaze from us and then turning His face towards us. Becoming angry and then setting aside His anger. Planning something and then repenting of His plans. Yes, we do. We read all of those things. But we also read over and over again, repeated so often in very clear and explicit terms, that He never lies, He never changes His mind, He never alters His promises, He never becomes anything other than who He is, He keeps His threats, He remains Himself all the time, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, irrevocable. So how do we square that circle? Is he mutable or immutable? Does he change or not change? The Bible says he does not change. He is being. His name is being. I am. And that is an unalterable name, says Herman Bavinck. All that changes ceases to be what it was. But true being belongs to him who does not change. So creation the revelation that God made to us of Himself, the incarnation when the Son of God took on our humanity, didn't change anything in God. Nothing in God. There is no new plan that has occurred to God or arose within God. God has always had one immutable will, one will. That's the difference between the Creator and creatures. It's the difference between being and becoming. And yet the Bible does also teach us that God is involved with us, graciously involved with us, in our creaturely life. He participates with us. He's there with you in your childhood. He's there with you in your teenage years. He's there with you in those young adult years, as you're making your decisions and your plans, as you're studying and you're, you're learning or you're beginning your new career, He's there with you as children come into your family. He's there with you as you reach old age. He's there at every step along the way. He is there with you by His Spirit. And so what He does is, in His graciousness, is that He stoops to talk to us, to, to speak to us, John Calvin says he uses baby talk because he knows we will understand God talk, so he, he uses language we will understand in order that he might communicate to us. And so sometimes he understands that the way from our perspective, it looks as if he's changed his mind, so he uses that language. It looks as if he's been going to do one thing and yet he does another thing, and yet when we analyze it, when we look at it, the big picture, we understand, well, no. He hasn't changed his mind. Or we think, well, didn't you promise to do this and you did that? But we don't see the big picture. God speaks. 
down to us. He speaks into our experience. He takes us where we are. But He reminds us all the time He's doing that, never for one minute take those things and project them onto me. Remember I was reading the psalm there, and it talks about God using His hand. By His hand, He made the heavens. By His right hand, He holds them up. You don't really think God has a hand, do you? He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. God is spirit, pure spirit. But He uses that language as an anthropomorphism. He says, human, anthropos, humanity. He's speaking to humanity, and He speaks to humanity in terms that we understand in order to communicate with us. But He constantly reminds us that we can't argue from creatureliness back into the Creator. We can't do that. It doesn't work that way. So what do we learn? Mary, what have you learned about your baby boy? That He's Almighty God. He's eternal God. He's the immutable, unchangeable God. Mary, you don't know what you've got there. But if you do get this, you won't be surprised when the wind stops when He talks to it. When the waves calm immediately, He commands them. Nor will you be surprised when He speaks to dead men and they come alive. Nor will you be surprised when He creates something out of nothing and feeds multitudes. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is the Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb. This sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. I am the Lord, and I change not, says Jesus. And that means for you as we worship this Christmas time, we are worshiping one who is true and fully God, very God of very God. We're worshiping one who can be distinguished from us creatures because He is the Creator. We're worshiping one whose very being, as almighty and as eternal and as unchangeable, strengthens our faith. Why? Because we look at what He's done in the past, recorded in Scripture, and we say to ourselves, He hasn't changed. His values are the same now as they were then. His love is the same now as it was then. His kindness is the same now as it was then. His love in times past forbids me to think He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. He will always be there. He will always be there, unchanging in His faithfulness, for His years have no end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Son. 
He who from all eternity has been your only begotten, sharing your very nature and sharing with you all the glory and majesty and dominion and authority and life and joy of your eternal home. We pray that today as we and the countdown to Christmas are thinking of that manger and that mother and that baby, that it will be etched even more wonderfully into our hearts who it was that came that infinite distance to come and put our skin on that He might take our place and do what we could never do, die our death, live our life, and then win for us eternal life with you. Lead us to trust Him, we pray today. In Jesus' strong name, amen.